You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Joining us today on the podcast, I've got Bill Buckley, the columnist for Ducks Unlimited Magazine, who writes the Waterfowlers World column, which many of you are very aware of. Bill, welcome to the DU Podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. All right. And and what we've got, Bill, on a while, Bill does write the column, uh, Waterfowler's World for the magazine every issue. Bill is a professional photographer and has really, you know, he's probably shot images in just about every publication that some of our li- listeners read and, and look at and have probably seen thousands of Bill's images throughout. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you an opportunity, Bill, to kind of share your story, who you are, how you became a professional photographer, writer, where you're from, and just kind of talk about you and, and do give a brief little introduction. Oh, thanks. Um, Yeah, I've been doing this for a a long, long time. Um, I've probably been photographing for about 26 or so years. Um, Actually, I kind of got my start with DU, so I'm very very grateful for my association with DU. I started off photographing and writing um, after I lost an editing job in the middle of building my Montana home. And <laughs> it was a little disconcerting. And but at any rate, I had a huge interest in waterfowl always and started picking up the camera. And I started shooting and, and got connected with Ducks Unlimited, which led to doing a couple books for them, The Waterfowler's World, as well as um, uh <laughs> Uh, there are a couple other books, actually, but uh, Misery Loves Company being the, the main follow-up book. But it got me into uh, photographing regularly for the magazine, and that was really wonderful. So that, in turn, kind of let allowed me to then expand my photography business and photograph for a lot of different outdoor publications like Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, Um and pretty much any any magazine that deals with gun dogs, um, uh, American Hunter magazine, um, just a just pretty much almost anything that that uh, has been out there, I, I've photographed for, and it's been a really wonderful life so far. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know, you know, that's one thing that you know, Ducks Limited Magazine really, you know, prides itself on is. You know, the imagery throughout the magazine. And uh, I know our photo editor, John Hoffman, you know, takes a lot of pride in selecting those images. And I'm sure our audience has probably seen, like I said, countless images uh, f- from you throughout over the years. So uh, it's great to have you on here and, and kind of talk about this. And, and that's what we're going to talk about in this show is we're going to talk about photographing your hunt. You know, we get a lot of, qu- you can even ask me, like, do you get a lot of photography questions? Like, ah, we don't get a ton of very specific 
um, photography questions, but we do get a lot of photography interest, if that makes sense. You know, our photo contest is one of the most popular um, f- features that we do every year. Um, also, you know, everyone that does the survey following each issue, they always mention, you know, how much they enjoy looking at the images throughout the waterfowl imagery, the hunting imagery. And it really stands out as something that, that makes DU magazine, um, what it is. Um, but before we get started in the photography, this is something that I do with every guest that I have had on so far, um, during this season is, I want to ask you how your waterfowl season was. And I know you're there in Montana <laughs> and, and it's, it was a weird year no matter what, but I just want to know exactly, you know, how your waterfowl season went throughout 2020, 2021. Well, my, my season was a bit weird because I ended up in June uh, tearing a, a glute muscle exceed really badly, which ended up leading to all sorts of, of, uh, visits to various doctors and whatever, I finally started healing up at the end of November. So literally, I lost all of my big game season, all of early duck season, um, and no upland bird hunting available either. I, I literally couldn't walk. And oh, man. so it, when by the time December came around, I said, I, I just said that enough is enough. I could hobble around and I got my goose decoys out and shoved them in my truck. And I ended up doing a lot of experimentation hunting by myself frequently. And then on a couple occasions hunting with a couple with, with just one friend at a time. And that was actually, it, it turned out to be one of my best, most enjoyable waterfowl seasons. And I, I mean, I didn't even shoot a duck, so that was a little bit depressing, but um, I, I hunted Canada geese exclusively and I got to experiment and I, I spent about five minutes each trip. So each trip was I'd go early in the morning. I would hunt the late morning and afternoon and then I would hunt the next morning and then I would come back. <laughs> and, and I had, I had six of those trips and I had phenomenal hunting with no more than five minutes of scouting um, on each trip. <laughs> I just say that's not a good example for people, but I, I experimented with decoys, with especially with hiding techniques. Um, I did not take one picture, I hate to tell you. And <laughs> I had a really successful season and I, um, I, I always, I always got geese and, um, and then I've been experimenting a lot with cooking, <laughs> cooking geese in different ways than I have in the past. So it's been, it was actually a really great end to a season that was fairly depressing starting off. Yeah. You know, sometimes that's the way it works is you go into it with uh, either no expectation or maybe you're even expecting it to be worse than um, hunts you've had <laughs> in the past. And it ends up being something that's uh, much more enjoyable. And you realize, Hey, this is, this is not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd gotten on a kick the, the previous year. I was so tired in late season of driving around with my buddies, trying to find um, fields that were accessible or available and it just, it just got tougher and tougher. And then a lot of the geese, um, there would be sitting out in the middle of plowed fields and with nothing but dirt. And so, you know, everyone would say, well, you can't hunt them out there. The geese are too wise right now. And, and so I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to find a way. And stubble fields are always tough to hunt in if you have low, like wheat stubble and dirt fields are, have always been tough. Um, and I ended up coming up with ways where I could hide in either one of those things and have geese fly directly over me 
um, and at low, you know, altitudes and never see me. It was wonderful. So it was, it was a neat season. Oh, that's fantastic. And you mentioned that you weren't out there taking pictures, which is, uh, you know, that'll kind of lead us. That's a good transition into, <laughs> um, you know, one of the first and, and we're kind of basing this conversation off of a column, a very popular column that you did, I think a couple years ago or last year. Um, and you know, it's, it's, one of those deals where you're just explaining, you know, the different ways of a few small tips to, uh, you know, to shoot better photography when you're waterfowl hunting. Um, and, and like I said, it kind of transitions into since you didn't even use your camera, but the first one that you mentioned, um, is be ready to shoot and, and kind of explain, you know, what, how you were, uh, you know, kind of started off with this particular tip. Okay. Well, um, I, I remember, you know, I used to go travel around a lot to, let's say Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. And I would oftentimes hunt and, and then photograph. And I would always find when I had a gun, uh, all the opportunity, the best opportunities for photography would seemingly pass me by. And so I ended up, um, deciding at one point that I had to have my camera ready at all times. And, and so, I mean, for a professional, it's a little bit different. Um, most of the time now I go and I photograph exclusively. I don't hunt. Um, but, uh, for most hunters, I would say this, that, that, you know, you wouldn't start calling ducks when you don't have your gun loaded. At least I hope you wouldn't. Um, and unless, unless you weren't planning to shoot, um, similarly, you you end up passing up so many good opportunities because your camera's still in your blind bag and and it still has the lens cap on and it's not turned on and so what what I do what I do every actually the night before a, a photo shoot uh, or a hunt is I will actually take my camera out and I will take the settings on the camera to I will set it up for basically low light situations because um, as you know down down in arkansas tennessee you know you'll your shooting hours hour starts a lot earlier than i can photograph but i still want to make sure that as soon as there's enough light to photograph i'm going to be able to so i set my camera at the lowest shutter speed that i think i can get away with handheld uh, which is typically well depending on the lens you use but typically about 250th of a second is pretty safe and then i i take my ISO setting and I put it up really high, whatever my camera can handle. So I have cameras that are capable of shooting, you know, with post-production half, half ways, decent pictures at 4,000, uh, ISO, uh, for most people who don't have professional cameras is probably more about a thousand or 1250, somewhere around in there. But, but basically set up your camera for low light because that's going to be the first light you have in the morning. And, and then, um, you know, when it's, when it's not, you know, it's still too dark to photograph and you can still hunt, <laughs> go ahead and hunt, but at least you have your camera ready for when an opportunity for a good picture presents itself. Yeah, no, and being ready. And from my experience, you know, I, I'm by no means a professional photographer, but I do shoot a lot of images. Um, and in my experience, I have, I have tried to do both multiple times, thousands of times. And what I've learned is I'm, when I'm trying to do both shoot images and shoot ducks, I'm bad at both. And <laughs> I've had to, you know, either choose one or the other. If I'm really trying to get an image or I'm really trying to, you know, focus on the hunt, I'm, I'm, I kind of focus 
choose one. I guess that'd be my recommendation. You know, you have to choose one over the other, um, but at least have your camera ready. So, uh, and, and just to go back a little bit, you mentioned, you know, having like a large aperture, um, high ISO, um, exactly. Can you explain just briefly, like what is aperture and what is ISO? Yeah. So, so ISO is basically like your film speed. So the higher the film speed or the higher the ISO, the, the faster you can shoot, um, the, the more light or the, the less light you can shoot in, I should say. So you can shoot in dimmer situations than you could with a lower ISO. So let's say, um, most color film used to be you know, 200 or 400 ISO with digital cameras. Now you can pump that up to, you know, a thousand plus ISO. And that allows you to shoot in a lot lower light. Uh, similarly, every lens has different apertures and what they will say a maximum aperture is its widest, um, meaning the most open, which allows the most light in. So it's typically the smallest number that's available to you. So it might be something in terms of an, uh, two eight F stop or a F four, um, uh, versus, versus a higher, I mean, versus a smaller aperture, which, which is like F16, which is like a pin, pin prick. It allows it, it, you have to have a lot of light, but it gives you a greater depth of focus and depth, what we call a depth of field. So, um, a, when it's, when a lens is wide open, it tends to shoot, it tends to have less in focus than, you know, from, from forward and backward than a lens that is cranked down to, let's say, F11 or F16, which will allow a lot more in focus. But, but having it wider open means you can shoot in lower light as well. So if you, it, it also, exposure is a function of, of ISO, uh, shutter speed and aperture. And so what you want to do for the lowest light settings is to favor all those things. So you tend to shoot with a little bit lower shutter speed than maybe you'd like to have when the light gets better. You have a more wide open aperture and then you have a higher ISO. And then you're adjusting that as the, you know, sun rises and the, you know, the marsh brightens up or whatever. So yeah, I just wanted to stress that. Oh yeah. So, so what I'll, what I'll do is I will typically start working. So as it gets lighter, I'll start, I'll start increasing my shutter speed because the shutter speed and you, what you want, shutter speed helps you. The higher shutter speed, the more action you can stop and also the more handshake you can overcome. And so I want to make sure I get that up to where, wherever it happens to be, if there's not much action going on and dogs aren't jumping and retrieving, you know, racing to retrieve birds and people aren't shooting, I may not be worried about having a fast shutter speed. But, you know, if but if there is action, I'm wanting to get my shutter speed up to at least five hundredth of a second and and more preferably up to a thousandth of a second. And then after that, um, and then after that, as it still continues to get lighter, I'm going to lower my ISO or my film speed. And that, and why is because the higher the ISO, the more grainy your pictures will be. So I want to get the quality of the image less grain, uh, down. And, and so I will start lowering my aperture to something that I know will give me like good, really good pictures, uh, without having to worry. So I'll typically bring it down in field conditions to 400 ISO. And then after that, if, if I want, if I don't want to have a shallow depth of focus, then I will go and I will start 
increasing my aperture to get more things in focus. And, and when you're, it depends on what you're trying to photograph. If you're trying to photograph a person or a dog, you might want to have the background be all blurry because that really makes the subject stand out. But if you're shooting, if you're photographing action photography where you're having, you're wanting to get birds and hunters shooting at them or calling to them, um, all in focus, um, then you're going to have to increase your aperture and get more depth of field. So it's just a balancing act. So the more light you have, the more options are available to you creatively. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, that that really kind of leads us into the next tip here that, um, you know, once you're ready to shoot and you've got your settings where you want them, um, as you're shooting throughout the morning, um, you, you know, you want you mentioned here that you want to check your images. I mean, that's the that's the uh, the convenience of digital photography, really. Um, and I'm sure you can speak <laughs> yes. to that, you know, probably better than most of, you know, pre digital. Um, but, yes, you know. Frequently checking the camera's display panel to see if you're getting what you want. Oh, it's it's huge. It's such a that was the the ultimate game changer. Well, two things. I remember when I was shooting film, you could only shoot up to 36 uh, frames without. Then you'd have to change your film. And if you're around water, you had to worry about opening up your camera and then <laughs> fumbling around with frozen hands and not dropping that roll into the water, which would ruin it. Um, and, and then putting another roll in. But the, the, yeah, um, it, but the other thing is being able to tell what you're actually doing. And so, yeah, I, I, I tell people all the time, the biggest advantage, I think it's called chimping. Um, and you know, you look down at your camera all the time and then, and zoom in and see whether or not something's in focus, because ultimately you can get away with a lot of, um, inexact photo technique with, you know, if you don't have something too terribly overexposed or underexposed or whatever, but you cannot overcome an out of focus picture. And so this allows you to see what's happening. You can, you can also see whether, gosh, you know what? I'm not really low enough. I don't have a low enough perspective. Or let's say you have buddy, your buddies are out there putting up decoys and it's this beautiful orange sunrise starting to cap in behind them. And you take a picture and you notice that their heads get lost in the dark tree line behind them or the marsh line. And just by lowering yourself, you can have them, their heads sticking above all that and they they're distinct again and it becomes a good picture so the ability to look at what you're doing and see what maybe you're doing right or wrong and then fix it in, in camera is just wonderful so yeah it's a huge advantage so take it so um use it to the full extent yeah and that you know that that's that's a good lesson for everyone because i mean i know i've personally shot you know eight or ten or or 50 frames early morning and then look down at them. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, they're pitch black. <laughs> you know, I did I had something not right. And so I made that adjustment, you know, as quickly as I could and, and tried to salvage, you know, those, that still, um, in, you know, mm -hmm. that, that good light that you're really looking for that early morning. It's kind of, uh, what everyone seems to really early morning sunrise or sunset late. Um, you're really trying to capture that, the, those visuals that are so, uh, prevalent in waterfowling that, that you really, you know, having the right settings and being able to know what you're doing is, is the way you and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan sport made for hard-working dogs of all ages every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina try it today and see why pro plan is the official dog food of ducks unlimited 
Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. to do it. That's right. The next thing that you talked about in the column is is follow the sun. And I know this is I've talked to several photographers over the years and it's just light lighting. You know, that's the key. But kind of explain um, what you were talking about as far as follow the sun. Yeah. So um, the, the one of the great things about digital and also being able to see what your camera is actually doing uh, by looking at the monitor after taking a picture is the fact that you can take advantage of all sorts of light that literally we couldn't while we were shooting film because um, we didn't have enough film speed to be able to accomplish it. But my favorite times of photographing um, are before the sun actually peaks over the horizon and becomes direct sunlight and right after it sets. And then I'm going to photograph into the sunset or the sunrise. And why I do that is because I... I'm not looking for silhouettes exactly, but what I want to do is take advantage of that beautiful colored light and um, I can still see detail in the shadowed side of my subject. And it becomes a lot more dramatic. You get a lot of beautiful rim light. Uh, but as the sun comes up and it becomes direct, sometimes you can have the subject um, in the subject block the sun and you can still get some really dramatic shots of uh uh, but typically, as the sun gets higher, it becomes harsher and stronger. And so what you have to do then is say, OK, I can no longer shoot into the sun because I'm just getting a, a really ugly picture where there's no detail in the shadow. So I'm going to move around. And at, when the sun is not too strong, I can shoot side lit pictures. And so that can be very dramatic, having one side rim lighted and the other not. But it can be beautiful sunlight. But as it gets a little bit strong, as the light gets a little bit stronger, um, I'm going to make sure that the sun is to my back. And one of the things that I think hunters are really guilty of is they don't take their camera out until after the hunt is over. And then, you know, they do their hero shots. And it's always under really harsh sunlight. The sun's usually, you know, it's usually 11 o'clock or so in the morning or 10 if, if it's been a good hunt and, and you're, you're shooting with sun way overhead. Well, even though the sun appears to be straight overhead, it's not, I mean, it's always to one side and the, the amount of, if you, as long as you position yourself so that the sun is even slightly to your back, you're going to get infinitely better shots because you're going to have less, um, less of people's faces falling into the shadows of their hats, for instance. And you're going to get just a little bit more detail, a lot less contrast. And, and contrast can be good at times, but, but contrast from hard sunlight is almost never good for a, for a, a pleasing picture. So, yeah, so I say follow the sunlight and be deliberate about how you're using it. So if you're, like I say, if, if I'm shooting before it crests over horizon in the morning or after it dips down, I'm going to use the sunlight to my advantage and get really beautiful, dramatic shots shooting into them. Because if I, if I have the sun to my back at that point, there's really, or there's really no direct light and it becomes a really flat lighted image. And I don't, I don't want flat. I want dramatic. So, but, but so, but, but always be, I guess every time 
you know, you're deliberate with a shotgun. Every time you pick up a shotgun or you, you, you shoulder it, you're going to be very deliberate. You know what you're going to do. You're already thinking ahead about making that shot. The same should be, should be, um, really the way you approach taking a picture because, um, if you're not thinking about everything, a, a good pictures don't come from just sort of shooting willy nilly. I mean, you can luck out and get some interesting pictures, but mainly they come from deliberation and knowing where that sun is and, and keeping key things in mind. So yeah, follow the sun is really, really important. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that early, you know, that's also kind of one of your next tips that, um, you talked about. And this is something that I notice a lot, you know, even looking at people's photographs on Instagram, but, um, you know, someone standing in one spot, you can tell they've taken 25 pictures in one yeah, spot, but yeah. you mentioned don't just stand there, you know, stay on the move, you know, try and get different angles. Um, but what are some of the ways that you approach that when you're uh, really trying to shoot some really dramatic stuff on, during a hunt? Yeah. Well, for, first off, um, <clears throat> the biggest consideration for me, I, I, is I never want to have people say, and, and it's happened before because you just never know if you're well hidden or not, but, but, um, I never want hunters to say, you know, it would have, it would have been a great hunt if that darn photographer hadn't been out <laughs> doing everything. <laughs> and, and there are times when I want to move and the action is slow. And it's just like, you know, the old joke about having to relieve yourself, you know, as soon as, as soon as you put your gun down and, and go somewhere that that's when the, the few ducks of the morning fly in. It has happened with me in photography. So there's no getting around that. But the main thing is to, is to not interrupt the hunt. And there are certain environments that are so much easier to photograph hunting than others because you are necessarily able to move around a lot and still be hidden. So like for so many reasons, my favorite place to hunt or to photograph hunting is by far flooded timber. Flooded timber is so dramatic. You have trees where you can move around to different trees and hide and shoot. But yeah, the, the main thing is never, never, there are two things. Um, never take a picture so where it just looks like you are standing there and taking a picture from eye level. Um, uh, so it, it becomes really boring really quickly. Um, you know, one of the things about duck hunting is that the action's coming from up in the skies, right? So people are looking up, dogs are looking up. So, um, one of the, my favorite techniques is to get down low. Um, I try to shoot, I can try to shoot as low as my waders will allow. And oftentimes I feel that water creeping into my <laughs> chest and down my belly because I've gone in too far or what, or have a sleeve full of water, but low, low angle shots are more dramatic. They're, they're tying the hunter or the dog in with what's coming from up above. You don't necessarily have to have ducks. Uh, flying ducks in the picture. It's awesome if you do, but, but that's where the action is coming from. That's where their attention is. So try to tie that in. Um, and yes, move around as much as possible. Um, I guess something that I like to say is that every picture should ideally tell a story. So, and I see a lot of Instagram pictures and unfortunately Instagram's algorithm, um, encourages people just to post pictures for the sake of posting pictures, but that's, that doesn't show quality. And so, but a, a good picture tells a story. And so what is, so by moving around, for instance, you can get a picture of a, of a lab that's really looking hard, but you might be able to get uh, a guy calling in the background, like right, right over the dog, or right beside him, or, or, or a, a guy getting ready to shoot or, or someone shooting. Um, that, 
that ties that dog in the relationship with the dog and the hunter more or having a, a hunter calling and having other guys in the background waiting or conversely something in front like decoys out of focus and then seeing a blind or a person hunkered down calling or shooting or whatever, or holding up a bird. Always think about what's in your background and foreground as a means of maybe giving the viewer a little bit more information about what it was like to be there and trying to think about relationships between things. And so, yeah, so that all means that you have to move around a lot, but ultimately you have to move around and be respectful of hunters and not, and really try not to hunt. Um, you know, the worst places I find to get good pictures in terms of variety are, is field hunting and in blinds. You know, you, you put a, especially if you don't have much cover, like in a stubble field, it's awfully hard to photograph. And if you have a lot of action, then to get out, move around and, um, and then set up again for a different shot. So a lot of times my pictures will look a lot the same if I'm trying to get action photos. I mean, honestly, the best thing that can happen is that the hunting is not insanely good, but you have moments of greatness and you have a periods in between where you're, you are more free. You can see in a long distance, whether birds are coming and then you can get up and you can get close, photograph the rows of hunters. Um, and that's, that, that works very well, but yeah, so every situation is different, but don't stay in one position. It's so, it's just boring. You got into the, you know, really the next one, which was improving your composition, which you've really, you know, talked about building the story with your images. Um, but let's take it back to like photography 101. And I just want to allow you to explain the rule of thirds and what that means. Okay. Well, yeah. So probably the most amateurs biggest sin is putting the subject in right in the middle of the frame. And for photographing people, for instance, on a hero shot, they'll typically have the people's heads right in the middle of the frame and a ton of sky. And they've left out a lot of the environment and the ground um, and the more interesting stuff. A blue sky is, is not interesting to look at. I'm sorry. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you have a sky fetish, it's not, it's not interesting. So, um, so the, the, the rule of thirds is a very basic thing. It's a, it's a rule that as you get better, you can break, but it is a rule that I use almost every with every shot I take, unless there's a reason not to. And that is that you want the subject, whether it's, uh, let's say if you're doing a tight shot of a person, it'll be his face typically, or the whole person or the whole dog or you know, a face of a dog, whatever you're, what, wherever you want the, the viewer to look at, it's more pleasing to go a third of the way in both horizontally and vertically. Now you might want to be um, having that face on the top third of the frame or the bottom third of the frame, just depending on how much information and other things you want to include in your picture. But it's always more pleasing. I mean, there are times when I will photograph directly, uh, have the subject directly in the middle of the frame, but it's only because of what's happening around. So I'm always trying to see what to include. So I guess the... The framing. So the rule of thirds is whether you're shooting a vertical or you're shooting a horizontal, you can have a, a face of somebody, let's say, and the t for a vertical in the top one third. It doesn't have to be one third over. It can be dead in the middle of the frame left to right, but one third of the way up. And 
that is a rule of thirds. So it, um, it doesn't always have to be work on a horizontal and vertical um, line, but but it typically will give you very pleasing results. Um, I do shoot a lot because of being, you know, ha- making a living off this and having been an editorial photographer for so long. I shoot a lot also with layouts in mind. So magazine layouts. So I might shoot something for a two page spread where I have the subject a quarter of the way in, which would put that that subject dead middle of one of those pages. So I and covers, you know, they take they depending on the magazine, like a Ducks Unlimited cover, you actually do want that subject a little bit more towards center from a vertical standpoint to allow for the Ducks Unlimited logo. So it's just all it's all learning about that. But if you're just doing it for yourself, then a, a, the rule of thirds is a really, really good way of of doing it. I was photographing turkeys around my house yesterday, and I, I, I would guarantee you 99% of the pictures are are taken with a rule of third in mind, unless I just didn't frame it very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One one uh, particular image that I see all the time, and I have buddies who love it. Um, and and it just it's just not my speed. It's not something that I go. They're always like, "Hey, do you want a shot of this?" I'm like, "No, nah, I'm good." But like the tailgate shot with the ducks, um, you know, and and that's one that I'm always like, "Yeah, you know, let's let's not do that." But some people really prefer that. They like to do it, and that's their prerogative. Um, but but you talk about in your column, you know, perfecting the hero shot, the the end of the hunt, or maybe even during the hunt, you know, um, but really perfecting that shot to capture, you know, the, the whole picture of, of what that hunt was about. Can you kind of explain that and how, how you recommend to people to, to really focus on the hero shot? Yeah, the, the hero shots can, can be really pleasing. Um, again, typically it's late, late in the morning. And if it's, if there's no overcast, then it's, you know, it's going to be a, a contrasty picture. Again, if you keep that sun slightly to your back, it's going to make it better. But the main thing is actually the, a good hero shot is really it's really kind of orchestrated right off the bat as soon as you as soon as you start pulling the trigger and it's because you want to keep the ducks or geese clean and so you don't put them in the mud you lay them out you smooth down the feathers you take broken wings and you fold them up to where they they look more natural and and take any mud or whatever, or just wipe it off, but keep them clean and dry. And that's going to right away make pictures better. And then instead of having a pile or whatever, if you have a duck strap, that's a wonderful way to do it. Um, typically, I like to, even though, honestly, if, if it makes more sense to to put birds in, um, hang them by their neck, but you can hang them by your feet, by their feet, and that will keep their necks looking pretty and their plumage looking pretty, and they'll be more fluffed out that way. Um, but, you know, basically it's how you sort of treat the bird. I, you know, take some time to kind of lay them out and smooth them over and get them looking their best and hiding bloody sides, let's say, of a, of a bird. Um, or a broken wing side, you can hide that a little bit, but, but clean them up and, and sort of uh, kind of be respectful to the bird and, uh, and show the colors and, and uh, show the variety of the birds. But, but again, nothing is worse than a bedraggled, you know, wet sort of full, 
pressed feathers in the wrong direction and against the grain. Um, the birds never look good. And uh, trust me, nobody wants to see those pictures. But, uh, uh, you know, seeing pictures of beautiful birds, I mean, that's that's a little different story. And that will really help. And another, I guess the last thing is, um, you, if you got a limit of birds, um, show that you're happy about it. <laughs> you don't, you don't have to look, you don't have to look glum. I, I can't stand yeah. it. I mean, I'll tell you, fishermen are so much easier to photograph because they're always, they're always happy about catching fish. Whereas hunters seem to think that they're supposed to, you know, to look serious or something. So, so, you know, really show the fact that you really had a great, great hunt and smile. So that yes. would be my my last tip. <laughs> no, that's for the perfect. Hero smile, shot. smile a little bit more. That can be a tip for everything. Just smile more. Yeah, and badger and badger the the hunters in the picture too. I mean, I I, I listen. I I you know they they always you know male male bonding is always you know half of male bonding or ninety percent of it really is teasing the other person and and so te- yeah tease tease your 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 hunting buddies make them make them smile one way or the other. Um, yeah, but it'll make for a lot better picture later on. Very cool. And then th- this has been, you know, really enlightening, you know, even for myself, um, to learn some of these tips that you're talking about. And, and really, you know, photography has become so popular and, you know, the, the ease of use with, you know, the mobile phone, you know, people are, you, you know, 20 years ago who carried a camera around with them all the time. Well, probably just the professionals. Now, um, everybody's got a, you know, pretty high resolution camera in their pocket. And just from your perspective, I mean, one, how has that kind of changed things? But two, you know, do you have any recommendations for people who don't have a big, you know, professional camera and who are just pulling out their iPhone and taking a shot? Is there anything that they can do to, you know, really improve? Yes. Oh, oh gosh. I mean, they're phenomenal because cell phones have these tiny sensors. Basically, when the the shutter opens up, that's that's what sort of records the image. Um, they the the ability to record contrast is a lot lower, and so you can. That's why you can take pictures in really tricky lighting situations where. If I did it with my professional camera, I'd have to really think it through, maybe add some fill light, whatever. And a cell phone takes this beautiful picture and it ticks <laughs> me off. Um, but, but yeah, you can, um, especially some of the, some of the cameras today or the phones today have cameras that uh, have amazing, um, resolution. But yeah, I would say a couple things. Um, number one, <laughs> make sure you wear, <laughs> make sure you have some sort of a rubberized coating around your, around your phone so it doesn't slip in the water. Um, and, uh, and there are some waterproof, um, little housings that I would strongly recommend, um, because, uh, yeah, one slip and your phone is toast. Um, and, but, but again, it's, it's doing the same thing as far as working angles. But one thing you'll notice about cell phones is it's all automatic exposure. Okay. So unlike, unlike what I, what I, I, I photograph 95% of the time in manual exposure mode because I can control the light no matter what angle I get in. And, and these cameras will take a scene that's very bright and it'll say, oh, that should be medium toned and it'll underexpose the picture. Conversely, if something's really dark, it'll say, no, that's supposed to not be black. It's supposed to be gray. And then it'll overexpose it. So what that does is if you're photographing your buddies putting out decoys, let's say, and most of the sky is lightening up, but the water is still pretty dark other than reflections. It's going to overexpose that picture and it's not going to be very pretty. I'm sorry, it's going to underexpose it because of all the light coming in from the sky. So you'll end up getting a really dark picture, but you can find if you 
raise the phone up a little bit, maybe tilt it down so that more of the water or the land comes in, that it'll end up raising the exposure to where you see detail of your buddies um, and doing, you know, putting out decoys or whatever. So, so with a cell phone going up or down to accommodate for that automatic exposure, you know, tilting it, just tilting it slightly or raising it over your head or conversely getting down low and tilting it up. You can see on your phone when it gets an exposure you actually want and when you can record those beautiful sunsets. And so you'll see a lot of beautiful sunset pictures or what would have been beautiful sunset pictures that are overexposed and it's all the colors washed out. So like say the way to to correct that is to tilt your phone or shoot from a slightly different angle and include a little bit more of either a darker or lighter part of the scene. Um, And I guess the other thing too would be get close. Um, That's one of the things, you know, cell phones are wide angle. And so whenever I'm shooting wide angle, 95% of the time, I'm going to be really tight. I mean, I'm, I'm going to worry about, distortion and everything, but I'm, I'm going to be really tight on a subject because that's interesting. If you pull back on, you know, you know, a scenic on a cell phone is not very, very exciting, but, um, in a scenic with a little, little person, then it's not very exciting, but you get up real close to that person and you can see the detail in the clothing and see the expression on their face that, that makes for a really good picture. So yeah, cell phones, cell phones are, are, are wonderful. I, <laughs> I gotta say, when I go on a vacation, I don't take my cameras. I go, I take my cell phone and I take all these shots and it's fun. But, but you will find that getting tighter to your subject is going to render a, a more interesting photograph. Oh, very cool. And I know that's, uh, you know, that, that's going to be helpful for everybody out there who's not lugging around you know, $10,000 worth of equipment as far as professional camp, you know, photographers, sure. uh, you know, and, and, and that's what it's all about. I mean, that's why we, I wanted to bring you on the show here to some of the things people can do with the equipment, some of the things people can do without, and some of just the basic stuff, like the rule of thirds and, uh, you know, understanding ISO and aperture and stuff like that. And that'll just really, that'll improve the ability of waterfowl hunters to share their story with those, maybe those who are not necessarily waterfowl hunters, but, uh, really, really provide yes. those stunning images. And I think that's an awesome part of what we're doing. Yeah, I, I guess the one one last really big tip that I would have, um, Chris, is that it, and, and it all comes sort of that whole thing we talked about where don't just stay in one position and move around. Um, so many pictures are ruined. And I see this with professional photographers, too. I just am um, where they have a person standing there or a dog or whatever, and there's a tree limb coming out the side of its head or a tree trunk directly behind it that looks like it's coming right up out of their head or a branch or a blade of marsh grass is cutting across the the face of the dog or the eyes of the person. And those are what I call distracting elements and they ruin pictures. Now I can fix a lot of that in post-production, but I'd rather not. And for most people who aren't aren't, uh, don't even know how to use Photoshop. They, they can't, they don't have that luxury. So always be, um, aware of what's immediately behind or immediately in front of your subject. And don't just say, ah, I'm sure it'll be okay. Uh, there's nothing more <laughs> depressing than having a sunlit blade of grass cutting across the face of a dog or a person and that you just flat out either didn't see or just thought, I'm just too lazy today to, 
to get up and move and it ruins and it'll ruin the picture. Believe me, I've, I've tried to be lazy about it and I, and there's no point in it. It ruins a picture every time. So that I guess would be, be a big thing too, is always be aware of what's directly behind or in front of what you're taking a picture uh, of the, you know, the subject, because that will potentially distract uh, from from your subject and ruin the picture awesome no this is this has been great bill and i appreciate you joining me today and we are we're going to go ahead and figure out a way to get you back on the schedule to come and, and join us again and we'll get even further into this photography conversation because i think our listeners are really going to enjoy this and uh and and i really appreciate you joining me today oh gosh thanks for having me on it was a lot of fun and, and uh hope hope some of these tips help I'd like to thank my guest, Bill Buckley, the columnist for Ducks Unlimited Magazine, who writes Waterfowler's World and is a professional photographer. I'd like to thank our producer, Clay Baird, for putting the podcast together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.